Just noted last week, we have a brief break from our normal series, and we'll take two sermons on Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and then in the week to come, we hope to have Mr. Tyler Ray. We come to verses 15 to 17 this morning, and though we've read them in the chapter, here again those three verses in particular, Christ speaking and says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. We live in an age of great confusion regarding many things, not least of which is the proper exercise of church authority. And so it's often pitted in either-or idea. Either you have tyranny, or you have liberty, or vice versa, either you have this radical um, lawlessness, or you have singular authority vested in an individual. Sometimes people will pitch it another way, that the exercise of any church authority is inherently abusive. No one has the right, say some, to tell me what to do. And of course, this is most regularly found in Western nations, which have imbibed from the Enlightenment this notice, this thought, that it is our conscience which is supreme instead of God's Word as made known to us in the Scriptures. But in the back of it all is a misunderstanding of the true authority, the real authority that Christ has given to the officers of His church. And so you'll notice that Christ presents this hypothetical, though in our experience, of course, we've seen it real, situation where a brother sins against us. And so what is it we're to do? Well, notice you're not just to level out your own discipline. You're not just to then meet out this thought of uh, exercise, but rather you're to go to your brother and tell him or show him his fault between thee and him. So you're not to go and say, hey, can you believe what so-and-so did to me? You're not even to go and say, hey, so-and-so did this to me and I need Um, all sorts of prayer. The calling is for us to go to that individual and to show the fault. And then if they do not hear, if they do not confess and repent, then it is we're to go to another. But notice, the purpose in doing it is to seek the good of their soul. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. You've restored that relationship. Praise to the Lord. And it's interesting, isn't it? This comes after Christ saying that he seeks the ninety and nine that have, or seeks the one that has gone astray, leaving the ninety and nine uh, to draw them back again. And so, what we see in context is the way in which Christ seeks after straying ones. And so, this means a couple of things we'll get to and focus more properly upon church authority and its officers. But notice your private faithfulness. 
may indeed prove to be the means of bringing an errant and sinful brother or sister back to the Lord. That's how Christ seeks his sheep. He goes through his people and draws them again. And so, for instance, you can see the detrimental effects of confusion regarding church discipline and other things. Well, church discipline is cruel, and why would we want to shame people, and why would we not be tender and kind, not realizing that loving and faithful steps of church discipline indeed are the most tender and God-authorized ways of showing mercy and indeed being used of God to the good of souls. In an age that exalts self over seemingly every structure of authority, it's no surprise that in response to these tender approaches that you pursue and that the church pursues, there's often a casting off and saying, what right have you to approach me? You'll notice the text is unrelenting. And so this professed believer who's entered upon private sin even is to be pursued with loving faithfulness. One going to that one, and if that fails, bringing two or three others to the end, as it says in verse 16, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And then if that fails, there is to be the formal procedure of the church being brought to bear upon that one, which if that fails, notice the language, let him be unto thee as an heathen or a Gentile and a publican, a tax collector, a despised one. Brethren, you have in this passage the essence of all loving, Christ-exalting, soul-caring church processes toward believers or professed believers, members of the church who enter upon sin. Notice this is directly given us of Christ. Not, of course, that that would mean anything less were it found in the Apostle Paul or John or for whatever other cause, but Christ Himself as King is saying this is the process to pursue. And brethren, if you survey simply our context today and you realize that it's far more common to ignore these things or to let things go, as it were, and say, well, we'll just let them go wherever. What you actually have is, number one, a violation of Christ's revealed will. The church has no liberty to make that choice. A Christian has no liberty to make that choice. An elder has no liberty to make that choice. A session presbytery general assembly has no liberty to cast off the process of Christ. To do so is to be defiant against the king. But moreover, it is likewise to be careless toward the one who has entered upon sin. The way that Christ pursues the one who has gone astray is by these very means being exercised. And though they are not always, in our eyes, successful to the reclaiming of such, It is the God-ordained way to bring about repentance from those who have turned aside. Brethren, we take this up quite aware that in our own history, our own congregational history and reality right now, there is one who has gone astray and continues in that path 
and has been brought under the highest censure of the church. And soberly consider this. Her body is wasting away. Literally right now. Her body is experiencing the very things that the Scriptures hold forth. This is not a game. It's not merely a church principle. It's not something that's you know, neglected and so we emphasize it. It is an ordinance from the King of Kings that He owns and uses to vindicate His cause. To vindicate and bring glory to His name. And so when these things are handled, they're not handled in some bravado saying, look at us, we're doing these things and others aren't. We enter upon these things with the highest sense of solemnity. Realizing that the Lord is not speaking in vain when He speaks of these things. And to revisit this, of course, helps us to correct and counter the careless teaching of the present age. Because the present age looks upon church discipline, its processes, its execution, and all things, as something out of sync with mercy and love. And yet, how can something be out of sync with mercy and love when it is the will of Christ? You see, we need to push back against the false love that is truly hate that many profess and do so, whether explicitly or through their overwhelming ignoring of this institution. One has written on this subject of late regarding the absence of church discipline and said to the extent when you survey the present versus the past years of the church in all faithful denominations, you're left with some choice. You either have to choose to believe the church is in a more spiritually rich, more obedient frame than it ever has been because there are almost no church discipline cases. Or, you have to admit that the church has become careless and faithless in its discharge of this responsibility. These are heavy things, brethren. And yet it is something that we must take up not only to fortify ourselves, but to be brought, as it were, under the believing exercise of the cause of Jesus Christ. Knowing as well that these steps, as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 5, even the greatest censure, it's not only for the glory of the Lord, not only for the warning of God's people, but for the reclaiming of the one who has gone astray which then strengthens us to continue praying that the Lord would so bless these things. So as we take up this topic of church discipline, notice again there at verse 17, if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. It's Christ's way of saying, put him out. He's no longer to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. He's no longer to receive the courtesies that are shown in kindness to brothers and sisters, but he is to be shunned. He is to be cast out. He is to be so treated that he may learn. And as Paul says, turn again unto the Lord. So three things for us this morning. Firstly, understanding the church's 
authority. Secondly, observing the church's authority. And thirdly, refusing the church's authority. First then, understanding the church's authority. We're often given a false choice. Either you're going to be popish and have the tyranny of the soul, or you're going to be uh, uh, congregational and uh, go about exercising merely influence. But the Scriptures present a different choice. And it has to do with the fact that church officers actually bear real authority in their declarations in accordance to God's Word, lawfully observed with due process as here stated. But to help us understand that, notice we must admit and treasure and protect the fact that all church authority is subordinate authority. Church authority is subordinate. It's secondary, if we could say it that way. It is under the ultimate authority of Christ Jesus the King. So the church officers don't in themselves bear a royal authority. They can't determine, well, I'm going to call that sin if it's not what God calls sin. Nor can they execute judgment if it is not in accordance to the will of Christ. Which, of course, makes it so that church elders must be steeped in, saturated by the will of Christ revealed in the Scriptures. Moreover, it must be that they are wise and humble men. And you start to see, by the way, how necessary the observance of qualifications of all are if ever these things are to be executed faithfully. Moreover, officers, how desperate it is for them to be those who are themselves perfected to Christ and living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to secure this point, we need not make the uh, point very lengthy. Simply notice that Christ alone is the superior one, the Most High. He is the King and Head of the Church. In many places assert this, of course, His very title. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the only Head of the Church. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, when it speaks of His exaltation, it says in verse 22 that God hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. And so it's Christ who stands as the head. It's Christ, in other words, who makes the decisions. It's Christ who determines the cause. And it's then necessary that His inferiors in the church, officers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and today pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, are steeped in His will for the church. You see this, of course, later on in Matthew chapter 28 when Christ says at the Great Commission, and we often think this is only about evangelism. Indeed, it is about evangelism, but it's not all that it's about. Notice Christ says in verse 18, all power, that is all authority, is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Christ stands as the King. He doesn't say all authority is given unto you. He says it's Mine. And then He commissions these church officers saying, go therefore and teach, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe 
all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And this helps beautifully transition us. Christ is the King. The church has no right to invent doctrines, commandments, practices, holy days. None of it's permitted. Why? Because only Christ is the King. So we're coming up to a season, of course, where many in the professed church start to say, well, let's you know, observe all this, this great Christian holy day Christmas. And we say, time out. Where in the Bible does the King say that we're to observe this? You see, that's the point. It's not about we're anti this or anti that. It's that we're pro-Christ. We want Christ's will, which is solitarily sovereign, to have full sway over all of the belief, all of the obedience, all of the observance, all of the ordinances of the church. And so Christ stands as the only King. Our confession says this so clearly, that there is no other head nor King. And the Pope is not that uh, head or king, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, and so on. But notice that this king has delivered authority to others. He's appointed others to bear a subordinate authority. You can see that in Matthew 28, of course, where as we read, and he says, Go therefore, teach all nations, right? whatsoever things I've commanded you. And so what is the function of church officers? It's that they are to receive what Christ has given and administer that in unfailing faithfulness without adding or detracting from His will. They can't say, I think this would be a helpful thing to add. And do you agree with me? Excellent. Well, let's do it. Because it's Christ will only that is to stand first and foremost. So Paul was very clear in this in his many testimonies. You see it preeminently, of course, with his correcting and reforming of the Lord's Supper. When he says the mess and the abuses of the Lord's Supper, he corrects it not by saying, I, the Apostle Paul, see this is wrong and I'm going to correct it. He says, no, that which I receive from the Lord have I delivered to you. And so the correcting of abuses in the church is bound only to Christ's will revealed in the Scriptures. And yet these officers bear true authority. Notice, for instance, Ephesians chapter 4, a clear passage on this topic when Christ is said to have risen and ascended on high. A glorious passage, of course, in Psalm 68, which testifies that He received gifts for men. We might wonder what are those gifts? You know, the psalmist tells us that it's that God the Lord might dwell in the midst of them. Well, what are those gifts? Paul explains for us in chapter 4 of Ephesians. It says in verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's an important word that's sometimes overlooked that's repeated, and it's some. He gave some apostles. He didn't give everyone that apostleship. He gave some pastors and teachers. Not everyone's a pastor or teacher. Some have that particular office to exercise the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ for the benefit of the body. And so you can see this connection 
where church authority is honored and exercised according to God's Word, it's actually for the benefit of the people. And so you can see Satan's tactics and ever confusing things in the minds even of Christians where they say church authority is no good, it's abusive. You know, you have this statement that's used and we get the context, of course, absolute authority corrupts absolutely. And we say, time out. We have to be clear in our thought. First and foremost, that's not true because Christ bears absolute authority and He's absolutely without corruption. What we have to acknowledge is where authority, even absolute authority, is given. If it is administered in accordance to the principles of godliness, it's a good thing. And likewise in the church, when it is that according to their office, according to those limits that God has given, authority is exercised, it is a good thing for the church. Now we have to acknowledge and very clearly assert He has not given absolute authority to any office in the church. We saw that. All authority in heaven and earth is given unto Me, Jesus says. And then He commissions His uh, officers to go forth in subordination to His authority, carrying out His will. He's given authority, real authority, to officers in His church to serve the body of Christ. This is why it's first glance wrong and second glance wrong and every glance wrong when supposed church officers sit back on thrones and are, as it were, worshipped by the church. Honored, yes. Highly esteemed, yes. But to be worshipped is to indeed commit a flagrant sin. So all church authority is subordinate to Christ. What kind of authority do they bear then? Well, it's right to acknowledge as those who have gone before us acknowledge that it bears a ministerial authority. Some of you are familiar with this language. There's what's known as magisterial authority and ministerial. And magisterial comes from a word meaning master, superior, the highest. Ministerial comes from one meaning servant. And so church officers bear a servant's authority. Puts it in context. This is why Paul will speak of being the steward of God's grace. It's why he calls himself an ambassador. An ambassador, think of this quite clearly, however highly exalted among men, is still fundamentally a servant to the king. The king says, go and tell this person that thing, and the ambassador is bound to deliver that message without addition, without subtraction, in the king's name. He's a servant. And yet for the person who receives that message to say, you're just a servant, I'm not going to care about this, is actually striking against the authority of Christ. Because Christ is the one who's appointed this. Notice, for instance, you can see a bit of this in Matthew chapter 10, when Christ is sending out His disciples. And He says, Matthew 10 and verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go out, in, go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But notice, in the same chapter, and there at verse 
14. Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words. Do you hear that? Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why is that? Why such severe judgment? But because they're bearing the message of the king. And in fact, Christ mentions this later in the chapter, verses, or verse 40, when he says, He that receiveth you receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So what's the point? The point is, though they are subordinate to Christ, they are truly appointed by Christ to bear His message, to bear that authority given them for the sake of advancing His kingdom, which then to resist is not merely to resist a secondary authority, because that secondary authority is attached to the primary and it is to reject the king. This is why you'll start to see, of course, the connections why Christ is able to say if they fail to hear the church, then He's to be as a publican, a heathen. He's to be cast out. Why is that? It's because, of course, they're ultimately failing to hear the mind of Christ. This is why, just to mention before passing on, Hebrews 13 uses a strong word. Verse 17, we're told, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Is it possible for those who bear such authority to abuse it without any hesitation? Yes, it is. But far from this dismantling the weight of what's been said, it only shows forth this matter. Parents abuse their authority. Does that mean children are then at liberty to cast off their parents' authority in every situation? No. They're to withstand the abuse. Governments may their authority. Does this mean we should be you know, uh, given to all sorts of uh, uh, looseness in our carriage in this world? No. It means we resist those mass matters of abuse. And so, where it's abused, it needs to be corrected. But where it's faithfully discharged, it must be upheld. Notice then, secondly, observing the church's authority. How is it that this authority is to be carried out? Well, a few things we can glean from the passage before us. Firstly, it is to be observed in an orderly fashion. Everything's to be done in order. And so this gives reason for often lengthy processes because there is an attempt to ensure that due order is honored. So Christ says, you know, in private sins, and this is important to note, this is a context of private sin. So someone sins against you, what are you to do? You're not just to sort of blast it to the world. You're not to put on Facebook, can you believe what so-and-so did to me? You're not first to go to your uh, elder or the church and say, I've got an issue with my brother. You're first to go to your brother and say, here's the sin. And there are multiple reasons for that, not least of which is, we may be mistaken, right? We may be wrong. But let's assume that we're right, which Christ is assuming as well. 
if we're right, we're actually using the Lord's means for the Lord's glory and the person's good. How many times, you can think as an older sibling, or even as a parent, have you put your younger sibling or your child in their place, not really for their good, but simply to make sure that they know where you are and that you're higher than they are. That's nothing to do with real authority and certainly not with church authority. All exercise of this process is to be orderly and ordered toward the good of that soul, however solemnly and severely the matter must be dealt with. It is to be an orderly fashion. So when that fails, if that fails, then it is, I don't just blather it everywhere. I go and get one or two others that we can then approach them. And verse 16, that every word may be established. Notice that. It's not just, well, he said, she said. And this often will face church elders, sessions, presbyteries, where you have two people and they're bickering one at the other. And though you might have a sense one might be right or wrong, if you can't vindicate and clearly give evidence that one or or the other is true, there's no ability to go forward in the process. There's pastoral work, of course, that is demanded. There's the exercise of continued meetings and so on. But when there is, without any evidence of the proof of the matter claimed, the church is left in a position of no ability to execute the issue of discipline. That's why there's this step. There must be clarity as to what's taken place. By the way, this is why when Paul's not dealing with a private sin in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say, listen, you need to make sure you follow this process because the sin is public. It's blown up. It's everywhere known. It's commonly reported, Paul says, that there is such fornication in your church as not even the Gentiles tolerate. Therefore, when you are assembled together, you are to judge that man and put him out of the church. He doesn't say, let's back up. Let's make sure someone goes to him secretly. And then if that fails, bring two or three more with you. And then tell the church, he says, this is blaring across the world. It must be summarily dealt with right now. But here's a different context. And the order is to bring about clarity that the matter that is accused is actual. That it really is the case. And when that is in the mouth of two or three witnesses, if there's the failure, then it is brought to the court of the church. And yet, though it is orderly, notice that the whole process from the individual through the small group to the church court is nonetheless to be the attempt at restoring. If thou hast gained, or if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And so on. This is the point. We're going order to, by God's grace, see the one reclaimed and turned again. And it is to be that way throughout. Notice, for instance, the highest censure of the church noted in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. This point is quite plain. There, Paul is dealing with that matter mentioned. And he says in verse 5, well, verse 4, he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you hear that? the authority of Christ in the court of the church, when that happens, you're to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But why? That the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
even when the highest censure is executed, it is still with an eye, oh Lord, would you bless this to restore that one. That as they are brought under the openness to Satan's unrelenting attacks, body being shriveled up, it is, Lord, our united prayer with no delight in seeing the suffering of such a one. It is, Lord, then bring that one to repentance that their soul would be saved. Surely we ought to note this is how we should be right now. Praying, Lord. We hear reports. Some have even seen the outward trajectory downward of this one's body. What should we be doing? There should be zero delight. There should be sobriety and redoubled prayer. Lord, Your Word's coming to pass. Your Word is being carried out. Would You then please hear our prayers and bring about repentance in the life of those under such censures. It is to be faithfully executed. It's not by hearsay, verse 16, but every word may be established. I heard that so-and-so did that. How did you hear that? So-and-so was all about this thing. Well, what evidence is there that that's the case? They did this. He said that. Where's the evidence? The church is not allowed to bring forth judgment on the ground of hearsay. The church is not allowed to bring forth judgment on suspicion. The church is to bring forth judgment in accordance to the teachings of God's Word and the matter duly weighed and established. The church can't mete out censures on a hunch, however strong that hunch is. As a light example... Those of you who have read through the life of Robert Murray McShane, you'll notice that there's a part where he's talking about interviewing someone for access to the Lord's Supper. And he talks of, I had a strong sense that this man is not truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But his life is free of scandal. His words are accurate. And so I am bound to admit this one to Christ. I gave him severe and solemn warning but I cannot bar him from the Lord's Supper because I would be acting on a hunch instead of upon the plain truth. And if that's on a very low aspect of church discipline, so it must be on the higher spectrum of church discipline. It must be faithfully and accurately carried out. This is why some of us have seen this happen when there is abuse of church authority, it is massively destructive to souls and it is massively deteriorating of the glory that belongs into Christ's good name. Well, thirdly then, refusing the church's authority. It's an interesting word that Christ has used throughout the section. He says, verse 15, if he shall hear thee. Verse, verse 15, verse 16, if he will not hear thee. And then in verse 17, if he neglect to hear the church. This word hearing has to do with receiving and responding rightly to what's been stated. And so if he neglect to hear the church, the church has heard the case, has understood what's gone on, the matters are established before them, and the church says, you need to repent. Space has been allotted and given for that and it fails to be brought to pass. 
This is what manifesting refusal is. It is what you find, for instance, in our own church procedures and legislation. It's known as contumacy, this obstinate refusal to hear lawful, biblically in, uh, in, instructed authority. And it often shows itself in all sorts of ways. Well, who are you to tell me? Are you saying you're Christ? Are you saying you're the only church? Are you saying I can't find another church? Who is, what is your interpretation against my interpretation? All of these things fly up. But brethren, if you step back, you'll see something very similar to Satan. Isn't that what Satan is often doing? Satan is often pitting these things against us and misrepresenting God's Word. And though we do not say that such are strictly and dwelt by Satan, we have no hesitation in saying they mimic the tactics of Satan. When God's Word is faithfully handled, the case is faithfully tried, and calls are faithfully issued, it's not the church setting itself up as Christ, but rather Christ ministering through the church, calling that person to repentance. And so the war is not against the church and the individual. The war is fundamentally against the individual and Christ. This is why it is most necessary for church courts to ensure that they are handling things in accordance to the truth of God's Word and the circumstances of what's before them. This is why there should never be a rush to church execution of excommunication. Because there is a need to ensure that the voice being heard is not strictly the church's voice, but Christ's voice through the church. And the only way that can be done is not by the power of personality or quick decisions, but by a lowly and studious and prayerful dependence upon God in accordance to His Word. This is why we must have godly elders. Right now we feel it in our own congregation. We're grateful for the elder we have, and yet he would be the first to say, we need more elders. And yet, brethren, we don't just need men. Understand this. We need richly qualified, spiritual, godly-minded men because these things come up in the life of a congregation. We don't need a strong personality. We don't need all those other things that the world looks for and says, there's a great leader. We need a man steeped in the Scripture who lives by faith upon the Son of God, who is equipped with all of the gifts of the Spirit. That one is what is needed. Likewise, we need ministers. But we don't just need men who are gifted in public speaking. We need Spirit-filled men who love the Lord and who are committed to His cause and manifest those gifts because they will be faced with this. And Just as we would not say in a business or a government, well, that person's a good public speaker. Ignore their character. We should say, though the world does that, well, he would be a great leader, but let's not worry about his private life. After all, it's private. The church says, actually, that's the very thing we have to concern ourselves with. Because what he is in private is what he'll be in public. The church needs godly men. Because when these trials come, it is only godliness which will indeed manifest the right way in dependence upon God's Word. 
But what is the significance of refusal? Well, we've already indicated it, but it's good to underscore it. It is fundamentally the refusing of Christ's ordinance. And thus, it is a refusal of Christ. This can't be watered down. It can't be lessened. Where Christ's will is rightly held forth and where Christ's authority is rightly brought to bear, to refuse it is to refuse Christ. We'll look at this next week, but just to see, it's actually what Christ is saying in the subsequent portion of this passage. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 19 is often wrongly said to be something about private prayer. It's not. It's about church courts. That's the whole context of this passage. When it is that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Sometimes people will approach a member of session or presbytery and say, what do you think the session thinks about this? Or what's the presbytery's mind? And the simple fact is the elder has to say, I don't know, because I'm not the session or the presbytery. It's only as we're gathered together in Christ's name, constituted in that regard, that we speak as the session or the presbytery. There's no individual who bears that authority that Christ has just mentioned on his own. It is the church court constituted in the name of Christ to which Christ is speaking at this moment. So what is the significance of this refusal? It is to refuse Christ. Yes, it's true if they are wrongly carrying out a sentence, to refuse that is not to refuse Christ. But it's not the case that every exercise of church discipline is a wrong use of church power. To think that it is must be proven. And this is the glory of church, biblical church government. If a session missteps, what's the individual's protection? I appeal to the presbytery. The presbytery missteps, what's the course of action? I go to the general assembly. You see, the Lord has built in protections against the abuse of authority. And yet, brethren, 99 times out of 100, if not more, so soon as someone says, you're abusing your authority, what's the step that they take? I'm out. And that actually discloses where the real problem is. It's not that they think that their cause is just in the, call, in the sight of God. It's that their antagonism is against Christ. What is to be done in the light of refusal? Christ says, If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. That is, he is to be cut out and cut off of the covenant people of God. No longer is he to be considered, as it were, a member of the society of Christ, his kingdom and church, but is to be set apart and set aside. And to understand this for a moment, do you remember when Peter is told you know, that he's to go and sit with a Gentile, and he's struggling with this, and then a vision of the unclean animals are brought low 
to him and, he says, and God says, rise, slay and eat. And Peter says, nay, Lord, I've never done this in all my life. And then he told, what I have called holy, call not unholy. And this happens multiple times and Peter finally gets it. And when he comes to the house of the Gentile, he doesn't say, you know what, God showed me that I can eat unclean foods now, they're no longer unclean. He says, God has shown me that I can sit with you. Isn't that striking to us? The Jews observed this distancing between Jew and Gentile in what we would consider extreme ways. They wouldn't sit at the same table as a Gentile. And with that as your understanding, that's what Christ is saying here. That's why Paul will say in his epistles, one under the censure of greater excommunication, do not eat with that man. One that is a proven heretic, don't welcome that one into your home. Don't say, God speed, God be with you. Because they are standing as a marked out enemy of Christ. That's a solemn and weighty reality. But our eyes have to see it as Christ's Word instructs us. Because if there's any hope of that man, that woman, those people being brought to repentance, it isn't through a falsely superior wisdom of being generous and kind and let's set this stuff aside and this is the better way. You know, isn't it sort of difficult to shame them and cast them out? And we say, absolutely it's difficult. And of course it's to be shameful that they would learn not to sin against Christ. The greatest shame in any of your lives should be this. You sin against God. And when people with a bold approach cast off not only His Word, not only the private admonitions, but the public admonitions of Christ's court, it is multiplying that shame. But the felt shame is so ordered by God's grace to bring that one ultimately to repentance. Brethren, these are heavy things, weighty things. What should that leave us with? One thing it should leave us with is to consider well how Christ's authority is exercised by lawful church officers. You know, the church today almost laughs at and mocks previous generations, as they'll call it, infatuation with church government. They say, you know, why is it that you know, there would have to be a book written, Aaron's Rod Blossoming? and show all of the godlessness of Erastianism and Episcopal church government? And why is it that people you know, in the 17th century were willing to die because the king was appointing bishops? You know, didn't they get it out of sync there? Wasn't that an imbalance in that generation? We understand why our world today thinks that way. It's because they've missed the boat on Christ's appointment of true church authority. This is not something of a peripheral issue. It comes into the main because the true and right exercise of church government is a great blessing to those in the church and a great blessing to those who flee from the church that they might turn back. It is, of course, something that our generation has ignored. It also should lead everyone here earnestly to pray for every known elder dear unto them. Because within each elder's heart, 
is a remnant of the old man which left to himself would easily abuse in multiple ways this matter. And we think of abuse as that heavy-handedness which is a form of abuse. But there's another abuse which is the misuse, the the non-use of this authority. If you want to see church authority abused, discover all the churches that don't practice it today. And you'll see the uncaring shepherding of God's people. That's not caring. It's not merciful. It is to withdraw from the church a means that Christ has instituted for her good. We ought to pray for our elders that they would be spared from the cowardice that is so often welling up in their own hearts, as well as for the tyranny that would likewise respond against the abject cowardice of our age. We need lowly and faithful men who would hold fast the Word of God. Brethren, likewise, it ought to pray, make us pray for those who are touched and under the censures of Christ's church because left to themselves, they will only refuse. And so when one is brought under it, it ought to not be the sense of, well, that's the end. You know, we're done. Due process is followed. But rather, it ought to be a transition into an earnest supplicating of God for His grace. Lord, now, now, leave the ninety and nine and seek the one that has gone astray. Brethren, it's a case that you and I read things in church history and in a matter of two or three pages, we cover 20 years. And we hear of this issue that seemed hopeless and it's brought to pass that it's a glorious thing. You do that in the Bible regularly. Right now, our congregation is tempted to think, here's one who's under the censure of greater excommunication, and we know how that's going to end. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be miserable. And after all, her body's withering away, and so on. Why is it not the case that we assault heaven and cry out, Lord, as You are bringing about this judgment in accordance to Your Word, would You then seek her and call her unto Yourself. That when we flip the page, we would see repentance and rejoicing and see the great abundance of spiritual blessing flowing out for generations to come. Why is that not in our heads? Why is that not in our hearts? Why is the throne room of heaven often staring at us saying, why have you forgotten to pray for this One who is brought under the censure that she might repent and it would be as it were life from the dead and glory to our God in owning His ordinances as He's promised. Oh brethren, let us confess and repent and let us be those who with renewed diligence would call upon our beloved Savior not only for the One we know, but for others that may be known to us. He would be pleased to reclaim them to the glory of His grace, to the honor of His great name, and to the gladness of the church to see such repent. Would you stand with me for prayer?